Welcome to the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and I'm a former doctor turned lifestyle entrepreneur. Each week, I interview some of the best minds on the planet on the science of achievement and the art of fulfillment. Come take this journey with me. Excuses are over. It's time to live. When we live in that magnetic, momentous energy, anything is possible for us. But when we have those anxious thoughts, those negative thoughts, that suffering way of being, it's almost impossible to create something meaningful. I will cut out relationships in my life if I don't think it's supporting the mission of the I will choose a mission over people. I just want to know that at the end of the day, that I fully pursued that mission to try to make people's lives better, the world better, whatever it may be, and know that I was an example of how to live a good life. Okay, before we jump into this interview, I want to invite you to be considered for my 2019 Traveling Mastermind. So go to workhardplayhardmastermind.com and fill out the application and we'll jump on a call to see if you're a great fit. This year, we'll be in Boston doing lots of cool things like training with Tom Brady's trainer, Alex Guerrero. In the middle of the year, we'll be heading to Monaco doing things like vintage car rides through the French Riviera. And then we're going to wrap the year in Florence, Italy, doing things like truffle hunting and hot air ballooning over Florence. Look, Life is all about fulfillment, and I really try and walk the walk. So if you are looking to be part of our tribe of 28 high-achieving entrepreneurs that are in the six- and seven-figure range, fill out your application at workhardplayhardmastermind.com to be considered. So think of the mastermind as having two parts. The first is the trip itself. And the second part is what goes on over the four days within the mastermind. Our group of 28 entrepreneurs will help you brainstorm and accelerate what you want to achieve in 2019. And we'll do that through a variety of different exercises, brainstorming activities, breakout sessions, goal setting sessions, you know the drill. So go to workhardplayhardmastermind.com, fill out an application, and we'll jump on a call to see if you're a fit. All right, let's jump into today's episode. You are listening to a very special 12 Days of Christmas Work Hard, Play Hard episodes. These are episodes that I think had the most impact, so I wanted to share it with you as we are approaching the end of the year and getting focused on our goals and what we want to do in 2020. So I hope you enjoy this countdown. Lewis, welcome to the show. My man, thank you. You know, what can I say? I am beyond blessed to have you in my life, to call you a friend. But more importantly, I get to dig in and ask you new questions today that I've never asked you before. Yeah, let's do it. All right, so thanks for making the time to do this. I think today, yep, I think today what we'll do is I want to cover a little bit about your background that maybe people who aren't completely familiar with you can fill in some gaps about you that haven't been discussed. Talk a little bit about uh, the areas of your life that have nothing to do with work, sort of in the the play hard part of the show. And then I want to talk about uh, something that we're both excited about, which is the upcoming Summit of Greatness. Sound good? Let's do it. 
All right. So I think a good jumping off point would be to talk about your religion. You know, they say you should talk about religion and politics at every dinner you go to. So I figured we'd <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I figured we'd start with religion. So, you know, they say the first seven years of somebody's life dictates a lot about their future. And you were raised in the Christian science religion. For those that don't know, can you describe for people what the basic, basic principles are of that religion and maybe even some misconceptions about it? I think I had a lot of misconceptions about it growing up because I didn't understand it fully, all of the, the founding principles. But essentially for me, the way I was raised was that our mind is more powerful than our body and we are actually spiritual beings living a physical experience. But my dad would always tell me that you're spiritually perfect. There is no imperfections in God's kingdom. And so therefore, your physical body can actually never get hurt. You can never physically have an injury, feel pain, get hurt when you believe so strongly in the spiritual being and the spiritual essence in mind and in one truth that God is love and that we are all spiritual beings in his kingdom. And so that was what was ingrained in my mind over and over again. But as a kid, when you start to have sexual urges and you start to feel this pain and you get hurt in, in, in sports, and I'm like constantly conflicted with these ideas for myself because I'm like, well, this feels painful when I hit myself and I just broke something and that hurts. And uh, I have these you know, sexual desires and all these other things. So I feel like I'm physical but I'm being taught that I'm actually you know, spiritual. So for me, it was a constant kind of like battle, not a bad way, but in a, in a good way to challenge myself, to challenge my thinking, to challenge my mentality, the way that I walked through life. And in some ways I struggled because, you know, I didn't have, I always had the, I was the only kid that had like a, a, a permission slip or a slip from whoever that said like, I didn't have to get shots. I didn't have to go to the, you know, I never went to the nurse's office. I never did these things because my dad wanted to, if I was sick or anything happened, he wanted to make sure we focused on prayer and essentially thought. You know, prayer that we talked about was thought, the ideas first. How do we heal ourselves through ideas and our thoughts? And it's interesting because the more I learn from a lot of uh, psychologists and doctors and spiritual leaders and quantum physicists, they're actually confirming the things that I learned in my religion at an early age. You know, I just had Dr. Joe Dispenza on, and he's all talking about, you know, the body does what the mind thinks and says and believes. And, you know, you can change your physical makeup through thought alone. You can heal yourself through thought alone. So as crazy as a lot of people thought that, uh, you know, when my dad wouldn't take me to the hospital or things like that, um, or that we would use prayer, to try to heal ourselves, it's kind of coming full circle to where all these people are talking about that now. And I'm like, yeah, that's my whole life. You know, this is what I believed growing up and saw almost miracle after miracle happen through, you know, myself, through my family, through other people in the, in the church, because they were always talking about how they were healing themselves and they weren't taking medicine. They weren't going to the doctor, things like that. Now, I ended up going to the hospital and doing things because I ended up getting sick a few times. And my mom, who was not in the religion, was like, screw this. If 
it ever gets too bad, I'm like, I'm making sure that you're going to survive and, and be alive. And I think that's where the misconception or the, the stigma comes from the church or people thinking about the church is that they've had some instances where I guess kids have died in the past because parents didn't take them to go get treated. And that's where they get, I guess, a bad rap. So, you know, what's interesting about this, I was just watching a, uh, a documentary. For those of you that uh, follow either Lewis or me on Instagram, you'll have seen that uh, we've just spent uh, some time together in, uh, in Greece. And when I was in Greece, somebody asked me about Ikaria. And I was like, what's that? And they're like, well, it's one of the blue zones. And for those mm-hmm. of you that don't know what a blue zone is, it's where people live the longest. So apparently Ikaria is really super close to Mykonos. And so I just recently watched a documentary about it. But what I learned in that documentary is that one of the blue zones or the only blue zone that we have in the United States is in Loma Linda, California. Yeah, it's nearby. Yeah, which is, and they attribute that to the Seventh-day Adventists who also don't believe in medication or drugs. Yeah. And so that pocket in Loma Linda specific to the Seventh-day Adventists are the highest living people in the United States, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, the uh, the founder of the religion is a, is a woman who was founded back in, I think, the eighteen mid-1800s. Uh, her name is Mary Baker Eddy, which I thought was also pretty powerful. She, she was actually very sick a lot of her life, and she had all this time kind of like sick in bed to reflect, to ask the question, why am I feeling this? Why am I sick? How do I heal myself? And she started to become a student of the body of the mind of spirituality and um, the Bible and all these things. And she wrote a book called science and health, the key to the scriptures. And it's funny, again, as I meet with these you know, doctors and spiritual leaders and quantum physicists, it's like, they all talk about modern day science. They talk about spirituality and blending the, the two. And so I think she was onto something, you know, a couple hundred years ago when she started diving in and, and listen, nothing is perfect. There's no perfect religion and, perfect ideals and things like that. But for me, it was an incredible foundation that I believe, even though it was kind of like different and weird or whatever, it gave me a a mental edge. And I still use those founding principles from what I learned as a kid to apply to my life. And I feel like it's, you know, kind of my secret sauce. You know, it, it is. That, that was going to be my next question, which is how have you, how do you think that the teaching has impacted you? Because you really do, if you look deep into your work, whether it's the books uh, that you've written or the podcast, there is a mind over matter philosophy that is weaved into the tapestry of, I think, what you teach. And I'm just, I'm curious how much you attribute either the religion, the upbringing, or however you want to hold it, you know, into that. You know, I, I think I went through a lot of emotional and mental trauma as a, as a kid, just through like family dynamics. And I don't think my, you know, parents were trying to cause that. I think it was more like self-inflicted uh, trauma and confusion and uh, insecurities and things like that. I, I just always felt alone. I always felt like, no one understood me. No one got me. And I think every kid feels that way. Like no one gets me and no one understands me. Uh, but I left home when I was 13 because I was just like, I need to get away. I need to get away. And, and I actually went to a school for a boarding school for Christian scientists 
So I actually kind of like rejected the religion early on. Like I never wanted to go to Sunday school or church. Like I was just bored. You know, I was just like a kid with ADD and wanted to go play. I didn't want to go sit in a church for an hour every Sunday. And it was early and I wanted to sleep in, you know, all the things that kids want to do. And it's funny, my, but my dad would send me to a summer camp every year in Missouri. Uh, and I lived in Ohio and the summer camp was for Christian scientists. And, you know, it's just like every summer camp, like, you know, water sports and activities and basketball and games and stuff. But they would have like little, what they called METs, metaphysicals, before every activity. We'd have, you know, I don't know, five to 10 activities a day. You go for an hour and you play basketball. You go here, you water ski, you jump off a rope swing. You do all these things that kids do. Horseback riding. But before every activity, they would have like a little mini church, like a little five minutes what they called Mets, metaphysicals. And they would have us essentially create an intention for how we wanted to, you know, live in that next hour and during that experience, but from a metaphysical, uh, spiritual way. What is God? We would just kind of reinforce like, what is our beliefs? What are we looking to create here? How do we want to show up? Has something happened to you? Uh, yesterday with a kid that you want to reflect on and talk about and work through. It's just like these little moments. And that set the groundwork for me to having these grounding intentions every single day of my life. Again, it created these habits and practices and rituals for just being thoughtful and mindful of how I wanted to show up in my life during a session, uh, an activity, a speech, whatever it may be. And this, I went to this camp every summer as a kid for a couple weeks. And I remember when I was 12, I went to this camp and I was just kind of going through a lot. I think, again, a lot of kids go through a lot in middle school. So I'm not trying to act like I was different, but I was, my brother had just got out of prison after four and a half years. You know, my parents were never happy. They were always arguing or there was just like this tension constantly in the house. So there's arguments. They had gotten in a kind of a fight recently um, at this time when I was in the house and, and heard these loud slams and screaming. And it was kind of a traumatic experience. And I went off to this summer camp. And again, at just the time, I just really didn't have many friends. I started stealing a lot more for about a year and a half. I was stealing every single day. I went into a store, whether it be like the grocery store, or like the five and dime or whatever. I would steal you know, candy bars, then ended up stealing jewelry, then ended up stealing more and more expensive things. A lot of people don't know this about me, actually. That, I don't even know what that's called. Is that a klepto or something where you're just like, I became addicted to stealing. Yeah, it's klepto. I became addicted to where it was a game for me. I could walk into a gas station, a restaurant, or whatever, and instantly I knew where all the cameras were. And this is back in, I don't know, 1995, right? So I... I instantly knew where the double-sided mirrors were or windows. I knew where the cameras were. I knew where the uh, employees were working. I knew where the hidden spots were. One of my greatest talents in sports was vision. I could just see where the ball was going to be thrown or where I needed to throw the ball, where I needed to bounce the ball, where I needed to go. I knew where the empty spaces were going to be. So I could always anticipate the play before it happened. And it's because I used to play all these games with myself as a kid. I was alone all the time and I would play these games where I would anticipate 
throwing a ball against the wall, hit four corners, and I know exactly where it was going to land. And I would do this for hours and hours every day because I was so bored and alone. And so I started doing this and applying this in the real world. It became like, let me see if I can steal a pack of cigarettes. And ooh, that was like this scary thing. Even though I didn't smoke, I just was wanted to do something that seemed, you know, like it was going to get me excited. And I would do more and more of this. And for a year and a half, I never got caught until the day I got caught, which wasn't even in a store or anything like that. I mean, I was going into Walmart. I feel bad saying this, but I was going into Walmart and like leaving with like clothes on me, like figuring out how to like take on two, I put on two pairs of shirts and then take off one acting like I didn't want it anymore. I had this whole game down where I was just like, no one can catch me. I would pick up like four candy bars in one hand, three in the other hand. I'd used to wear this huge starter jacket and I would look at both of them so that the camera could actually see me. And I would put one down while I would slide the other one in my starter jacket, hidden from the camera, but then also take another one at the same time and look at that one and be like, okay. And I'd always go buy something. So the trick was never to leave without buying something. But it was just to show that, hey, I could pick. It was like a, it was like what's that called with magicians where they kind of pick up two cards, but it looks like one. I was like really good at this like kind of sleight of hand thing. Mm-hmm. And until the day I got caught, my dad took me to, he took me to one of his clients. My dad sold life insurance for like 30 years. And he took me to a client's house of his, which was in the farmlands in Ohio, about an hour away. He took me and my, uh, you know, basketball teammate of mine at the time. Again, I'm 12. He took me there. We just got done with practice and my friend came with me. And we were kind of like walking around this guy's, this farmer's house while my dad was doing like a business meeting with him. And we were walking into like all the different rooms and seeing if the drawers would open. And we went down to the basement. We were just kind of exploring the house. We went in the basement and we opened up one of the drawers and there was 25 bucks in there. And we both took, I took $5 and my friend took $20 and didn't think of anything of it. Didn't think it was going to be an issue. Ended up leaving. All was good. At about 3 a.m. that night, I get woken up by my dad who's really mad and is like, did you take money from so-and-so, my client? And I was like, no, I was like terrified. I was like, no, I didn't take any money. And he goes, this was his, his money to pay for the feed for like the, the cows or the chickens for that morning. And he needed the money to pay for this food for his animals. And I was like, no, I didn't take it. And again, I was terrified. My dad was larger than life. So having this presence wake me up at 3 a.m. angry, uh, you know, I was just like, no, because I didn't want to get in trouble. Little did I know that he calls my friend's mom and dad, and then he admits that he stole money. My dad is furious. He takes me back later that day. We have to drive an hour to go give this guy back his money. And I have to confront this person who is so angry at me. I let my dad down. You know, my dad's client. He's making money off this guy. They're working together. They've been friends for a long time. And I steal money from one of my dad's clients. It's kind of that moment where I stopped stealing and realized like, this is not the way I want to live. Bring it back full circle. I went to summer camp that year in Missouri to this kind of Christian science summer camp. 
And I was kind of rebelling from going to church. I didn't really want to be in church anymore, again, because I was doing all these bad things. And I went to this summer camp. And again, my parents were going through this stressful time. I really didn't have any positive friends in my life. I was just stealing every day to try to make myself look cool and do something exciting. My brother had just gotten out of prison. My two older sisters were off at college. And I was going to be essentially the only one at home. And I just felt like there was no good path I was going to go on for the next five years, eighth grade and high school. I just kind of had this feeling. And when I was at this summer camp, something switched for me. It was the right time of my life where I met a few of these kids who just were so positive and so accepting and so loving and giving and joyful. And I just had a blast for two weeks. I had so much fun. And this was the first two weeks of summer. And I got off the plane from St. Louis coming back to Columbus, Ohio. Both my parents were there to pick me up. And literally, the first thing I said was, I want to go to this school in St. Louis, Missouri. And a lot of these kids who were um, at the summer camp were, it was all a camp for Christian scientists. And a lot of these kids were at this private school for Christian scientists that happened to be in St. Louis. And I said, I want to go to this school because I want to hang out with these kids. Like these kids were positive, inspiring. I want to be around this type of energy. My parents were like, absolutely not. We're not sending you away. We can't afford it. You know, we want you at home, all these things. Once I have a clear dream, vision, goal in my mind, there is nothing that will stop me from doing whatever it takes to get it. Every single day, I hounded them and just said, I am going to this school. I will do whatever it takes. I will clean my room every day. I will do this. I will, you know. And it's funny, once we have something we care about enough, like, the desire to do greater and do anything at all starts to happen. They were like, well, we can't afford it. And I go, I'm going to write letter after letter to get grant money, to get financial aid, to figure out whatever it takes. They were like, well, you don't have the grades. You know, it's a private school. You don't have to have the grades to get in. And I was like, I'll take tutoring. I'll do summer classes. I'll do this. It was like, whatever it took, I showed my parents that I was willing to do anything. And I I had to apply to get into the school. I had to write essays. I had to get letters from the church. I had to do all these things. And the last week, I was like, okay, guys, I've got everything. Will you please let me go? And they let me go. And that was the moment my life changed forever because this school, even though it was strict and hard and challenging and all these things, gave me such a strong mental foundation. And I definitely would not be here without making that decision to go to that school. What do you think that stealing the candy bars taught you? Why do you think that was put into your life or why do you think you created that in your life? Do you think it was purely just out of boredom or do you think that there was a a bigger cosmic lesson that you needed to learn and you had to learn it by, you know, really letting somebody down like, you know, in the story? Yeah, I think it that's a good question. I think, you know, my brother went to prison for selling drugs to an undercover cop. And I think it taught me a lot about you know, I don't want to go down that route. Like if I kept doing that, I realized that I, I let my dad down. Not only did I let him down, but I hurt his client, the person that I was stealing from. I hurt his client's family. I hurt his client's farm, the animals, like the, you know, the ripple effect of the decisions we make hurt more than just one person. It hurts, you know, it could potentially hurt hundreds or thousands of people. 
if you make one wrong decision to steal, to lie, to sh- kill someone, you know, it doesn't just affect that person's life, which is finally over. It affects their entire family, the community that that person impacted, the the organizations that person donated to. It affects such a broader ripple. I think that's the moment that I kind of woke up and was like, oh, my actions can hurt a lot of people. Even though I only stole five bucks, right, or whatever. But I was stealing, I was more on a stealing spree. And I realized I was hurting the business owners and the people that worked at these companies. And and it just didn't feel good also. It didn't feel good to do that and to kind of live with this out of integrity feeling. So I think it taught me a lot about integrity. And listen, you know, as long as I'm breathing, I'm going to be out of integrity with something. You know, I was two minutes late to this call. I'm out of integrity. I'm not on time for things. I'm not this. I'm not exactly my word 100% of the time. So as long as I'm breathing, I'm going to be out of integrity. But the key is to be the best that I can with my integrity, with my word at all times. You know what's interesting to me? The fact that you are, you know, back at that time when you were confronted with the candy bar, you're like, no, I don't know what you're talking about, dad. I, I have no idea. But now at this stage in your life, you're so willing to be honest about what you're experiencing that I think it's, frankly, I think it's one of the things that make you so incredibly relatable for people. I mean, you you have created, you know, we've overused this word raving fans, but you have created raving fans. I mean, people are are nuts about you. And I think a lot of that has to do with just how honest you're willing to be about struggles you've had, things you've done in an effort to correct it. Where do you think that came from? And have you always been that way? I'm not sure if I've always been that way of like radical honesty or opening up. I think, you know, five years ago when I started to do a lot of more emotional intelligence training and and opening up about being sexually abused for the first time when I was five and kind of going through that journey and process and healing stage. Once I opened up about that, it was the scariest thing for me to to let people know about that about me. I was like terrified that people would would you know not like me anymore or make fun of me or think I was less than or would hurt my business or whatever I was afraid of. And when I realized like, oh, people actually trust me more and love me just as much and still like me and want to spend time with me, then the fears that was the biggest fear for me to reveal my biggest secret. And so when people actually embraced me more and fell in love more or just, you know, the same, I was like, oh, okay, well then I can share anything because right. this this was the worst of all things to share. So what, I mean, I stole some candy bars, like, oh, okay, whatever. Like, it's no big deal. That opening up, you know, when I turned about 30 years old and started to open up about things, uh, I've just been down that journey ever since. And and it, if it just feels, you know, it doesn't feel, it feels natural. And I don't, it's like, I don't know any other way now. And so I just do my best. You know, it reminds me of like watching uh, Eminem in the Eight Mile movie, if you've seen it. Mm. And, yeah, uh, and he you just know. puts himself down. In the, in the yeah, rap, yeah, right. He's just like, okay, I live in a trailer park. My mom smokes crack. What are you going to do yeah, now? Yeah. My friend <laughs> shot himself in the crotch. This and that. Yeah. yeah, right. What did you think you were going to be in high school? Professional athlete was the only thing I thought about. I think I had a, a powerful mind, but also a limited mind because I didn't see beyond sports. 
So I wasn't thinking about like the rest of my life. I was thinking about college and figuring out a way to get paid to play football. That was the dream. I also dreamt about being an Olympian. So I, I was a you know, decathlete and thought about that for a minute. But really, it was just like, how do I make it into college, develop my skills as an athlete so that I can get paid after college to, to catch a football? And that was the only thing I obsessed over it. It was the only way for me. And so when that was done, uh, my identity was completely ripped uh, away from me. And that was the biggest biggest kind of loss for me because I, I was, again, powerful in my thinking, but also limited in my thinking because I didn't have anything else I was thinking about. I was just like, well, this is all I know how to do and this is my life and my identity and this is the way. So when the way was no longer an option, I was like, well, who am I? What am I going to do? What's my purpose? Like, Why am I even alive? And I think that, you know, year and a half on my sister's couch of like, recovering from injury and figuring out who I was. You know, my dad went through, he was in a coma for three months of the year prior to this happening to me. He got in a bad accident, car accident, hit his head. Another car came on top of his car. The bumper hit him in the head. You know, they had to cut open the car. He was, it was a helicopter to the hospital and then three months on life support. And it was a very traumatic time as well for me because I was a senior in college. Uh, my senior football season. So he missed my entire senior season. And when he came back, it was just really sad. It was happy that he was home and alive and that he woke up. But at the same time, I lost my dad that day because he couldn't talk. He couldn't remember anything. He was just a shell of his former self. And his former self was larger than life inspiring, powerful, loving, all these things. Once he and my mom had gotten divorced when I was a, a young teenager, he like transformed into this like, I don't know, beautiful butterfly that was like shedding old energy. Uh, and the same thing with my mom. You know, I just think they weren't right fit for each other. And so when they both were, you know, separated, they, they kind of started to, to fall in their own lane and figure out who they are and he was the most incredible dad from, you know, 13 to 21 until he got, until he got into his accident. And he's still alive today. And I talk to him every once in a while and see him, you know, once, maybe twice a year. But his emotional capacity, mental capacity has never been the same. And he's recovered and you can have conversations with him and, you know, have a good time connecting with him. But Every time I see him, he, he says the same questions. He says, you know, where did you go to school again? And did you used to play football? And, you know, it's kind of the same story over and over, which is where his mind is limited to right now. So it's very, the first three, four years to see, you know, my dad, my hero, my friend, my mentor, the guy who was helping me through my, my dreams, guiding me into college and was going to guide me afterwards to no longer have that support was one of the most challenging things for me, but also at the same time, one of the greatest blessings for me, which is weird to say, because I also don't think I'd be where I'm at today if my dad was okay. And I think in some ways it was supposed to happen. And it sucks for me to say that because 
you know, pains me to see my dad the way he is right now. And it's, it's really challenging um, to watch him, you know, physically deterior, deteriorate and emotionally and all these things. But he's happy the way he is and he, you know, he has a happy life. So I'm at least okay with that. But for the first few years, it was really hard. You know, we had to teach him how to walk and talk and go to the bathroom with him, all these things. I remember in my life, well, let me say this. You and I share a very similar story. Um, I was probably, I guess I was in about seventh grade and we were getting ready to go to Disney World uh, the next morning. I woke up, all the bags were packed. My dad had a car accident the night before he was drinking. Um, And uh, my mom was looking through the house for pictures um, to take to the surgeons to reconstruct his face. And I remember having to, you know, he was in a wheelchair when he got eventually home. And I remember vividly having a Maxwell House coffee can that I had to give him so he can go to the bathroom and then then empty it for him. So I have very vivid memories. And, you know, I've actually never shared that with anybody. So uh, thank you for sharing that. And there's a great example of how when somebody's willing to go forward, then it creates the space for somebody else to go forward. So, all right, your, your podcast is all about greatness. You interview the best of the best about greatness. And I want to dig in a little bit to what you've learned and maybe even what you're struggling with uh, right now. Are there any particular teachers, and it could be a podcast guest if you want to use one, or it could be anybody that you can point to that if you had to, and I know you've interviewed just hundreds of people, so it's a very difficult question to ask, and I know that there's a lot of categories, but if you had to think about just one, either a past guest or anybody else in your life that you can point to, that you can say, this person has impacted my growth either first thing comes to your mind or somebody that you know this guy's imp- or woman has impacted my growth the most. I'm looking at my wall. I've got a wall of greatness with all these people I've interviewed and, and a lot of them I've had amazing relationships and connections and moments and, and times with. But I just looked at one person that, as you were saying, that kind of stood out. And that's Chris Lee, who I've had on the most. I think he's been on like 12 different times in the podcast. And he was the one who facilitated this workshop five years ago that got me to open up about the sexual abuse story. And I've just had a really close relationship with him ever since. You know, after that, he was my coach. I hired him to be my coach. And then we just became good friends. He's always kind of looking out for me. There was a couple of years ago, I think maybe three or four years ago, where I was still overcoming a lot of like challenges, even though I had, you know, let go of a lot of this past stuff and was healing and, and moving forward and more positive, I was still kind of like defensive on online. When someone would leave a, a critical comment or review or something, I would always kind of try to like reply back and defend myself and be like, well, this is why I did this. And, you know, and I remember he, wa- he saw one of these comments that I did online and he texted me and he said, you know, never respond like that again. He goes, you're giving your power away when you respond like that instead instead just say thank you for the feedback period and leave it at that when someone leaves you a critical response or negative response and you just say thank you for the feedback period what are they going to say they're not going to keep coming back 
right? <laughs> it can't do any. You've actually just taken them, take it, taken them out of the neutralize it. Yeah. And so neutralize that's the word. Yeah. It's, it's like either don't respond or respond. Thank you for the feedback and, and move forward. And he said, look at it as feedback. Don't take it personally. Realize that you weren't able to, to connect with that person. Maybe it's one out of a million people who the message you shared didn't resonate with. So look and see if the feedback is relevant in any way. If it is, how can you improve? How can you get better? How can you, you know, communicate in a way that does connect with that one individual as well as the millions? And if not, it might just be about them and what they're going through that day and let it go. And that was a powerful reminder again. And, and he's helped with a lot of different things over the years, but you know, someone who's always got my back and looking out for me, I think uh, he's, he's one of those people. Yeah, he's great. I just did an interview with him uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, on this podcast. And he's just, he's, and not only that, what you just described, but he's also really funny. He is funny. And he makes you, he makes you laugh. He is funny. What are some beliefs that you have about life now, having done all of these interviews? What are some new beliefs that you have that you really think are helping you? I think it's more of like, the beliefs that don't support me anymore. I don't know if it's I don't know if it's new beliefs because I've always I, I've heard a lot of these things before. It's kind of reconfirming beliefs. But there was one belief when I went to India. When was this? A year and a half ago to do a two week meditation uh, experience, and I did. I learned a lot there. Actually, I learned a ton about suffering and not suffering. And really, what I realized was from this experience. It was called One World Academy. They taught there are, there are two essentially ways of being, suffering and non-suffering. And suffering, we are living in a state of anger or frustration or resentment or fear or anxiety. That's a suffering state of living, of being. And a non-suffering state would be peace and joy and passion and love and community and family and all these other ways of being, of coming together, where it's more of a relaxed state. It made it easier for me to recognize anytime I'm suffering or not suffering. And when, whereas before, I used to just think like, well, this is who I am. I guess I'm just going to suffer. I guess I'm just going to be in this fear and stress and anxiety until it goes away. But when I was able to realize that if you look at your at these two states in front of you, suffering and non-suffering, and you see them in front of you, right? All you need to do is remove yourself from the suffering, the ego mind, the self-centric way of thinking. And when you're living in anxiety, fear, stress, whatever it may be, it's all about you and your ego, well, this is this hurts me. Someone said something nasty to me and it hurt me, or I'm I'm hurting here, or I'm frustrated here. But when we remove our kind of our, our ego, the thing that's getting hurt the most, and we put it to the side, act like you're grabbing your ego out of your body and you're holding it into your hand in front of your face, and you're looking at the ego. And that is the thing that suffers. So when you look at it, you can have it in your hand and just say, okay, this isn't me. This is something I'm holding on to that is suffering. It's my egoic, self-centric self. So when I remove this from my body and I look at it from the side, I can laugh at it. I can look at it. I can play with it. I can disassociate from the ego where I'm not feeling attacked or hurt anymore. It's just my ego. 
And when I let it go, then I can move forward in a non-suffering way of being, a, a peaceful state, a joyful state, back to gratitude, back to perspective. And that belief for me has supported so much over the last year and a half. And just also having a continuous practice of meditation. It's funny because all these things come full circle. Again, when I went to this Christian science camp, we would have these METs, we called them metaphysicals, before anything we did, we would ground ourselves, we would pray, we would set an intention. And going to this meditation retreat really talks about the first thing in the morning is following through on this, you know, meditation of setting an intention for the day of being mindful of not suffering and moving into a peaceful, joyful, powerful, passionate state of being. And so, again, it's just kind of confirms all these things that I learned as a kid, but maybe I just need to relearn them in a different way that works for the times and for where I'm at in my life. But that was a powerful belief. Can you give me an example of when you caught yourself recently suffering? Yes. For me, it's my big thing that I constantly work on is when I feel taken advantage of or abused, that's when it can creep back in if I'm not prepared. If I haven't meditated for a number of days, if I'm tired or exhausted, I can go back to that old way of being, that suffering state where I'm triggered, I react, and I try to defend myself. And then I get into this like, how could this person do this? I mean, don't they know what I'm doing for them? And you know, get this kind of like anxiety, frustration buildup where it starts to consume my energy and take my energy away from me. I give my power away when I go into that place. And then it bleeds into the rest of my day. It bleeds into trying to be present when there's some celebrity on my podcast and I've got this little negative suffering mind that's fixated on something that happened, whatever. And it bleeds into working with my team. It bleeds into my workouts where I'm more tired. It affects me in a negative way when I allow that to happen and I give my power away. And that's why I talk about having these habits embedded into your lifestyle. Or for me, it's like waking up at 6 a.m., working out at 6.30, meditating, although I haven't been as consistent meditating lately. Having that in, I always feel more loving, more patient, more relaxed, more calm state. And when I'm in that state, that's when I flow more. And when we flow more, our dreams come to us as opposed to having to work as hard. And I think that's what people get to remind themselves. is like when we are living in anxiety or, or frustration or anger or resentment or hurt, whatever it may be, we're unable to fulfill our dreams because we are so fixated on this suffering way of being. When we let that stuff go and we express it in ways so where we can move through it quicker and we can let it go quicker, then we can get back into our most powerful way of being. We can get back into confidence, into poise, into presence, into grace, into mindfulness. And that power becomes a momentum that is unwavering, that it just is so magnetic that when we live in that magnetic momentous energy, anything is possible for us. But when we have those anxious thoughts, those negative thoughts, that suffering way of being, it's almost impossible to create something meaningful. 
you're really good at that. I mean, I've, I've seen a thousand people around you and you're very Zen. Um, you're very in the moment. You're very present with whoever you're talking to. Certainly if I've been, you know, one of the thousand people that are around you, you're just very, very present. So whatever you're doing is working. So, uh, I just want to give you the <laughs> nice. feedback. It really is. It's, it's, uh, it's super um, inspiring. Oh, Let's just you. say that. Appreciate it. Yep. What are some things that you do around success and greatness that people disagree with or think you're crazy? First thing that came to mind is I don't know. I don't know if this is the the main thing I do, but whatever reason, the first thing that came to my mind is I put my mission above anything, and I have a belief that my life is now, currently, at least in this moment, uh, that I'm here for a mission. And that mission is the most important thing. And it doesn't mean my friends and my family are important. It doesn't mean like I won't do anything for people. But for whatever reason, I believe that my mission is more important than anyone. And I will pursue my mission over anything because I believe I will would regret myself, regret and hate myself later in life if I allowed a couple of people to hold me back from pursuing the mission. That doesn't mean I don't want to have it all and I don't want to do the mission and be there for my family and be there for my friends and you know show up in a powerful way for people. But I will cut out relationships in my life if I don't think uh, it's supporting the mission at the highest level. It doesn't mean I won't have a conversation with those people and talk with them and figure out a way to make a win-win. But if it's not creating a win-win where I can do both, I will choose mission over people. And I think that's, it may sound like, I don't know, bad or it may sound negative or like I don't have a heart or something, but you know me, I care deeply about human beings and I care deeply about other people and their growth. But if someone is just trying to be negative to take my energy away, then I'm I'm not allowing that person to be in my life. Again, after we talk and after we like figure out a way to make it work. But if if they're not willing to make it work, then I'm not willing to just sacrifice my energy for my mission for one person. Yeah. I mean, I, that, that is absolutely the answer to the question I was looking for. That is a polarizing statement and it's a controversial statement, but I know, I know the place that it's coming from. I mean, I have like a thousand things I want to say about it and I'm not going to say anything. Yeah. <laughs> you know why I'm not going to say anything? Because your assistant told me that I have exactly 59 minutes with you or I'm going to turn into a pumpkin no, and I don't fine. have the time. <laughs> Well, here's the, here's the challenge. And the reason I try to say it that way is because so many people are all about family, family, family. And I am as well. I like, I love my family. You know, some of my family works with me. Like I pay a lot of things for my family. I'm there for my family. I'm there for my friends. Like I care deeply about human beings. That's, that's who I am. But I'm also, I left when I was 13. I've been on my own you know, since I was 13, essentially, as well. And I've been kind of on this mission-driven life at an early age where I, and I always felt alone. I was the youngest. Everyone was older than me. No one really hung out with me. Like, I felt alone. And it was just like, okay, I'm here for a reason. What's the mission? Let's go pursue it. And I, I, I just want to know that at the end of the day, 
that I fully pursued that mission to try to make, you know, the community, people's lives better, the world better, whatever it may be, uh, and know that I was an example and was a symbol of an example of how to live a good life. And it doesn't mean I don't want to spend a lot of time with my friends and family and like be there for everyone. But it's just if someone gets in the way of the mission where they are unable after, you know, years of communication and going through workshops together and therapy and all these things, like I will cut them out. And that's just where I'm at. Mm-hmm. I got it. I got it. We're going to do podcast two on that one because I have sure. some thoughts. I want to talk to you a little bit about the play hard part of your life. You and I just got a chance to do some play together in the Greek islands. We had a great time. Well, let me just give you this pre-frame before I ask this question. Entrepreneurs like yourself really set their lives up in such a way that work and play is kind of blended in a lot of ways. So I want you to kind of filter the questions that I'm asking you through the lens of having nothing to do with work, if that's possible. If you could spend a month anywhere in the world, where would it be and why? And it could be somewhere that you just want to go back to. Like I was there, like I was in Italy and I just loved Italy. I want to go back to Tuscany. Is there anything that comes up for for you? Like I just want to spend a month there. I mean, I could go, I could go to a lot of places and have a lot of fun. So for me, it's, it's hard to be like, I only want to go to this one place and spend a month there. I haven't been to Japan and I keep hearing about Japan and there's like this deer city where all these like deers just roam and you can like pet deer and hang out. And I just know there's so many cool things with the culture there. I think I would love exploring in Japan for a month and, and like the all, yeah, just all the ancient wisdom there and their culture and things like that. So Japan, I'd say that. What's the thing that's rocking your world now that has nothing to do with work? But you're like, dude, this is great. I, I really love uh, taking care of my health, and even though maybe that's part, you know, that's that's partly for work, but it's just for myself. Like I would want to do this anyways, even if it wasn't like I needed to be look fit on camera or something. But I really love kind of again taking a full circle back to my roots, like practicing food as medicine and thoughts as medicine, and seeing how far I can take my body with with the pain that I feel and where, how far I'm, I'm able to take my mind every single day by showing up, putting in the work, and seeing transformation both internally and externally. So I love um, the body-mind connection and pushing myself through pain every single day to see how much stronger I can get. I love that. That's a perfect answer. If you had all the time and money in the world to pursue a hobby or some recreational activity, what would it be? I don't know. I I had a dream of like traveling to the greatest salsa clubs in the world and like doing like a, a TV show, like an Anthony Bourdain of like white boy salsa dancing and the culture and like from my perspective. But I kind of do that. Like every time I travel, I'll go and find like the best clubs and like dance and experience it. So I'm not sure if I would, I feel like I'm doing what I want to do. I think I would, you know, I would probably start a sports league. I would start, mm. I would start a professional handball team uh, league in the U S because it's something I'm passionate about and there's no pro league here. And I would spend the next 10 to 20 years building the next premium sports league 
in the U.S. that actually gets attention, that actually gets like traction. You know, there's really like what? There's base MLB, there's a basket NBA, there's football, I guess the NHL, but that's kind of like the main things. Then the MLS now is starting to pick up a little bit more, but like there's not really other big major sports uh, leagues in the U.S. that have taken off that are real iconic franchises. So I think creating a, an iconic sports franchise and building a movement that's already big globally, but, but then making it big in the U.S., that would be fun. It would just take a lot of money, time. It would take 20 years and a lot of money in building grassroots programs through every elementary school in America, middle school and high school, and infiltrating a new sport into kind of like what soccer tried to do 25, you know, 30 years ago in the U.S., and it's still taking a long time to pick up. So I think that would be a fun legacy hobby to build. Love it. They say that we are the average of the five people that we hang with. How do you approach reaching out to people that you want to be in your tribe? You know, people who look at you are like, God, he, you know, he hangs out with you know, the biggest athletes in the world, the biggest celebrities in the world, the coolest online influencers in the world. But I'm sure that you're always searching and reaching and trying to up-level your tribe. How do you approach reaching out to somebody, you know, that is not currently in your tribe, but you you want to be in theirs or you want them to be in yours? Humbly. <laughs> I... <laughs> I focus on becoming the better version of myself that people would want to be around. I focus on, you know, if I was them, what I want to hang out with me. What do I have to offer them? What makes me special, unique, different? How can I solve a problem for them? How can I add value to their life? How can I never ask them for anything or bug them, but just be a quality person that they want to spend time with or would love to meet up with? So I just think about, you know, those things and yeah, adding, adding value, not asking for something and, and just seeing how I can be of biggest service to them in any way possible. All right. In the last two minutes we have left here, this is the ask me anything you want round. Let's change it up. What one question would you like to ask me? Why are you afraid to go after your dreams? Why am I afraid to go after my dreams? Wow, that was a good one. That shot adrenaline <laughs> right through both my hands. I, I think that it is pure fear of failure. I, I think that it's, it's just old school 101, um, afraid of being, uh, afraid of failing. And I think I've spent, I've spent most of my life very protected um, after I got out of chiropractic school in that I had and have a very successful practice that has provided a great life for me. And it's put me at 72 degrees. It's never been amazing and it's never been horrible. I've pretty much been able to do whatever I want with it. So I've never been willing to go through the the pain of failing at the level that I should, you know, when you're, you know, when you're doing a startup and you got nothing to lose, you're like, screw it. I got nothing to lose. Let's just, let's go all in. Let's put all the chips on the table. And I've never done that. And I've always played it safe because I've been afraid to fail, but that's not something I'm doing anymore. I'm going all in. And that was a really good question. I love it. 
That's great. That was a really good question. Now I'm going to have to think about that all day long. <laughs> Let's talk about the summit of greatness. Yeah. Tell me about why you did this thing and what your vision is for this next one coming up. Every year I try to take on something new that, that scares me and it challenges me. It's, again, something I learned early on in sports. It's kind of my philosophy for life that if we want to grow, we have to do the things that scare us the most. And so every year I think about that personally, for my health, but also for my business, my career, things like that. And a few years ago, I remember everyone was who was listening to the podcast was like, we want to meet people in person and we want to, you know, we want to form a community. When are you going to start doing meetups and events? So I created this experience for my community because they were asking for it. And I remember saying to myself, like, I don't want to do an event just like all these other events I go to. I want to create this unique and different, but I don't really know what I'm doing. So I've got to figure this all out on my own and hire people that do know what they're doing and try to kind of reinvent. And I, I steal very well. Again, I told my story of stealing. And I steal from not inside the industry, but outside the industry. I find things in other passions of my life and I feel what gives me, you know, that warmness in my heart, those goosebumps, those chills, that excitement. And then I try to steal that experience, that idea, that format, recreate it in my space. And that's what I tried to do with the Summit of Greatness. And so this will be the third year. I really like TED Talk format, but I was like, I don't want to copy that because it's in my industry. How can I recreate something in other spaces and bring it to this space? So it's really kind of like a TED Talk for the heart and soul and body, where in the morning we do workouts with world-class athletes. We've got Olympians leading workouts. We've got you know world champions uh, leading workouts. And then to activate the body, then we have world-class speakers throughout the day where we activate the mind and, and the heart. And then we have you know, awesome experiences at night to activate the soul and community. And so for me, it's just about creating an experience to really add value again to my core audience, the people that listen to my podcast or are part of my community the most, to give back, to meet up, to hang out and have fun. And uh, that's what we're doing for this time, October 4th through 6th. For those of you that have not been to this, I'm just going to make it really simple. Just go because it is... By far, I promise you, I know that people who listen to this podcast, you've been to a bunch of events, you've been to a bunch of seminars, what's the difference? It's just going to be another speaker. It isn't. It isn't. This event has Lewis's thumbprint all over it from the moment you wake up until the moment you go to bed. It's a family. And I have a Summit of Greatness family now. You've met a lot of people from there, haven't you? It's unbelievable. I mean, it is unbelievable. I cannot tell you how many people are in my life from this really? event. Um, oh my God, it's crazy. I mean, just really, really close people that I get messages constantly from. So Lewis has been uh, kind enough to create a special work hard, play hard section for us. Uh, we've got 100 people that will be at the event. And we are down to exactly two tickets wow, left. Great. <laughs> yeah. So if you're interested, um, just take a screenshot of this episode and uh, tag me on Instagram and uh, uh, tag me and Lewis, and uh, I'll give you the uh, the tickets for uh, the special price that we've been promoting it at, which is uh, one ninety nine, uh, which it is not any longer. So. 
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Lewis. I am exactly four minutes over my time. I hope you forgive me, but I I did the best I could. I still have two more pages of uh, notes that I missed. We'll do another one. Dude, thank you so much. I appreciate it, brother. Thank you. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live. 